This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, welcome, everyone. Um, allow me to reintroduce uh, our special guest, uh, Professor Emily Carbon of Chapman University. She is the author of the recent book, Independent Stardom, Freelance Women in, Hollywood, in the Hollywood Studio System, which, as I mentioned earlier, uncovers how female stars, including Constance Bennett, Irene Dunn, Miriam Hopkins, Carol Lombard, and Barbara Stanwyck, challenged Hollywood's patriarchal structure by freelancing and working independently in Hollywood. So let me begin um, with a question about your book. In your book, you explain that as a freelancer or free agent in the industry parlance of the time, that Lombard chose her own film projects and negotiated individual deals with multiple studios. Moreover, her freelance contracts contained provisions that guaranteed her creative control over her career and star image. She retained, for instance, the the ability to choose the director, cinematographer, co-star, producer, screenwriter, story, costume designer, makeup artist, hairstylist, and even her publicist. Can you tell us more about how she navigated her own career and challenge the hierarchical and paternalistic structure of the film industry of the time. Yeah, it would be my pleasure. Please. <laughs> An opportunity to talk about Carol Lombard is sort of a, a, a favorite dream of mine that I could do endlessly. Um, and it was such a pleasure to watch this film with you. It's it's tragically her last, but I really do think it's it's I think it's her best. Um, so. If you read the book, and no pressure, but if it's available on Amazon if anyone wants to get it. Um, but I start out the introduction with her part because she is the vanguard of independent stardom. She is the most demonstrative case study for what you talked about with freelancing and being a free agent in the Hollywood studio system in the 30s. And that was because um, she wrote out a seven-year contract at Paramount Studios for seven years, well, clearly for seven years, um, and that experience really mobilized her to achieve everything you just detailed. Um, but there are a couple, main, uh, two main points I'll make um, in, um, in regard to your question. One is she, her two best roles from um, her time at Paramount were not at Paramount. They were on loan out um, mm-hmm. to Columbia and Universal. And if you know anything about the studio hierarchies of the time, you know, those were the little three, the lesser, um, certainly compared to Paramount, weren't on the same um, level in terms of prestige. But at these two, um, these two separate deals, which were loan outs, um, she made 20th Century with Howard Hawks, which is, con- that's probably, I think, her second best film after mm-hmm. this. Um, and that was, put her on the map. I mean, the film had sort of mixed success. It's a John Barrymore movie. He's very good in it. Um, but the, the industry was like, whoa, this is Carol Lombard? Because at Paramount, um, she basically took the discarded roles of Claudette Colbert and Miriam Hopkins um, and was getting sort of second-rate, glamour girl uh, films, never comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'd think maybe Paramount would take notice, and they didn't really. Um, and then uh, there's another film that comes along a few years later in 1936 called My Man Godfrey. So it's probably her third best. Some might disagree with me that maybe her best. Um, it's her sole Best Actress nomination, but it was a huge critical success and commercial success. And you'd think by, by that point, Paramount might take notice. And they did, but it coincided with her being able, her contract being done. And so she renegotiated this time as a freelance player. And part of that reason is because of her agent. That's the other 
um, factor here in, in her career trajectory towards independence. And her agent was Myron Selznick, the lesser known brother maybe of David O. Selznick, the producer of Gone with the Wind, um, and a distinguished Hollywood producer in the 30s. And Selznick was the top agent in 1930s Hollywood. And she was became his client in 19, I think 1933 and after she was married to William Powell, who was one of his clients. Mm-hmm. And it was Selznick, through his negotiating, that you know started getting better. Even if Paramount wasn't giving her the roles, she got paid more. She was able to um, parlay these loan-out deals and to really breakout performances. And by 1937, you know, she becomes the highest paid uh, actor, male or female, in the industry, and with all those provisions that you just mentioned. So I think if she had not, uh, if maybe, who knows, if Paramount had, you know, took notice and started developing screwball comedies mm-hmm. for her, maybe she wouldn't have gone this way, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's interesting. So how did she become involved in To Be or Not To Be? Was she a freelancer in this case? Yes. And yes. as I understand it, Miriam Hopkins, a longtime Lubitsch collaborator, mm-hmm. and wonderful too, <laughs> uh, was the original choice for the role of Maria Tura, but she turned it down. So how did Lum- Lombard land the role, and how did she see it? Well, there's, act- there's anecdotal evidence that, I don't mm-hmm. know if this is true, but um, anecdotal evidence that Hopkins was actually venting to Lombard that she was dissatisfied with the script. And that Lombard encouraged her to turn it down, and then she ends up taking it. So I don't know if that's a covert strategy on Lombard's part, but um, yes. Uh, and I, I mean, I love Mary Hopkins. She's also in the book, another one of these trend-setting freelancers. Um, but by this time, I think um, you know, Hopkins had a reputation for being a bit difficult to work with, um, and that may be because she actually you know, um, was, took her craft seriously and mm-hmm. made it known. I don't think that means she was difficult. Um, but uh, for, for what Marie's other, she turned the role down. And um, Lombard, I think, was at a point in her career where she was freelancing, um, but she had just had a big hit at RKO doing Mr. and Mrs. Smith. No relation to that Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie movie from a couple years ago. But this film is actually one of the, I think it's the only comedy that Alfred Hitchcock directed in Hollywood. Um, but this was a, her return to comedy, and it was a big hit, and it restored her reputation and her bankability. Well, not reputation, her bankability. And I think now she could pick a project that had more risk. So what we, you might um, not know, or the audience may not know, I'm sure you know. Uh, Lombard was a feverant anti-fascist and was very much one of those stars that wanted the U.S. to get involved um, in the European war before the, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. She'd already met with President Roosevelt um, and asked what she could do. Um, and I think uh, taking this role was a way to put her politics with her art and make her stance known. Um, and I think this might relate to another question, but her and Lubitsch had a history um, from his time being studio chief at Paramount. I think that was the only time when anyone was paying attention to Carol Lombard when she was there, but they never actually got to, um, he never had to direct a picture because he was running the studio. So I think this was finally their opportunity to work together. Um, and they had they had, had plans for several years um, to produce movies together. So. And this would you know, unite both of their passion as what well, later they were later called premature anti-fascists. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, how does Lombard's role as Maria Tura build on her earlier screen performances? You write in your book, and I'll quote, that she was known as the ultimate publicity hound of the 1930s since, and you go on to say, the actress appeared in more fan magazines than any other star, 
posed often for cameras, granted numerous interviews, and issues and issued frequent press releases. So, and I was when I was reading your book, I thought, well, so Jack Benny isn't the only ham playing self-reflexivity <laughs> reflexively no. in the film. Can you say more about how the film plays with her star image? Yeah, I think that's that. That's a point that I hadn't really thought about with, in regard to this film, but I think it's spot on because, especially when um, Robert Stack is telling the British officials, "Wait, but Professor Selinsky doesn't know Maria Tora. You can't even go into a grocery store without seeing a magazine yeah. of Maria Tora." And I was thinking, that's exactly probably how it would have been with Carol Lombard. You can't walk into a American grocery store without seeing, you know, a fan magazine or a newspaper article with her, with her, um, her being the ultimate publicity hound. So, um, I do think there is some self-reflexivity there with both her and Benny's stardom, and I think they're playing off of. I think Benny is um, a stand-in for. I mean, he's so different from Clark Gable. If anyone, if you don't know who he is, Google. You'll see and read about him. But he he was sort of like the the he-man ultimate. Um, you know, male star of his era. Um, but I do think, um, you know, they were, they, they were the glamour couple of the moment. And I think, you know, th- certainly um, there were insecurities on his part. I don't think um, in the same way that Joseph Tordas are. But I think that that's being played out with this superstar couple and, and whose stardom it's is more. bigger, who has the secret admirers, the lovers, you know, <laughs> but they're still devoted to each other but insecure. Um, but I think the moment that plays off of, um, in addition to the um, interaction with Stack and the, and the fan... Um, the fan magazines, is when she first makes her entrance in that gorgeous dress, and the director's like, what are you doing? I don't know if it's the dress or her body, but go <laughs> okay, on. Yeah. Probably both. Um, but, and she's like, oh, but think of my entrance. You know, I'll be in this amazing dress and, and the concentration camp. And I think that's um, her and Lubitsch um, satirizing her former close horse image at Paramount. Yeah. Because she was, they, they were trying to, her thing was, or not her thing, what the studio were, was branding her as was the Orchid Lady. Um, she was in this pre-code film. Oh, I think it's, I forget the whole title. But um, it, that was the film that they were like, oh, well, you know, she'll be in all these glamorous clothes, these Travis Banton outfits, and that'll sort of be her thing. But I think that's a poke at, um, well, you know, she's definitely more than, you know, a gorgeous woman in a gorgeous dress. Right. Yeah. Great. So in your book, you mentioned that Lombard was uh, supposed to be a founding partner of Lubitsch Productions, which ultimately fell through. Can you speak more about the relationship between Lombard and Lubitsch? Yeah, I would love to. Um, as I mentioned in, the earlier, in my earlier response to Patrice, there's, there's a history with Lubitsch and Lombard. Um, it's almost like to be or not to be was unfinished business. But he um, he's the only... A film, creative filmmaker who tried to run a studio in the studio system for nine months, 1935, and Paramount had some serial executive trouble there, and they're like, well, maybe Lubitsch can run the studio because he's our top director. Um, and by this time, Lubitsch, uh, it coincides with Lombard's turn in 20th century um, and shows that she should be an A-lister um, star at Paramount. So he took notice and this is this is the moment when she did finally have a starring pictures, and I think the quote is um, that Lubitsch said, "Carol, before you were just Carol Lombard, and you were in some pictures, but now we're going to make Carol Lombard pictures." Um, and he's the princess comes across, which is great. She's spoofing Garbo. I don't know if you've seen it, but no, I it's really good. I mean. She's not literally spoofing Garbo, but she's playing a, a, a Wanda from Brooklyn who's pretending to be the Princess Olga from a, a Scandinavian country. 
Um, and then um, I think it's uh, Hands Across the Table, where she plays a manicurist. Um, and I think both films co-star Fred McMurray. Um, and if Lubitsch hadn't resigned from that position, I think maybe she would have um, got the role. She got as a freelancer as the queen of screwball sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he left, and then we come back to the, to the Lubitsch company when she's a freelancer. And this was the brainchild of Lubitsch, um, Myron Selznick, um, uh, Lombard's agent, and William Powell, who was by then her ex-husband, and they remained good friends. And they were going to form an independent production company where they would um, all get their salary through profit sharing, through a percentage of the profits, which is pretty standard practice with top talent in Hollywood today. Um, And she was quite excited about it, but um, financing ultimately didn't come through. And they didn't, there's some, I haven't been able to get pinpoint exactly, but Myron Selznick had a lot of enemies around town, so there's some anecdotal evidence that, um, you know, the other partners at UA, like Sam Goldwyn, didn't want to fund um, the film, um, or that um, they just, um, you know, Myron Selznick, unfortunately, had a, became a full-fledged alcoholic by the end of the decade, and there may be some signs as alcoholism yeah. impeded this, but... For whatever reason, I think to be or not to be is um, the long-awaited uh, fruition of the Lubitsch company. Yeah, interesting. Well, I wanted to take up the the films as I spoke about at the beginning. It's exploration of performance, um, it, and and it's exploration really of the relationship between acting and theater and politics and fascism. Um, German study scholar Gerd Gmunden, he's written a really wonderful piece on to be or not to be. And he emphasizes that the film, and this is the point, that the film is an allegory of Hollywood filmmaking and the ways in which Hollywood has historically repressed its others. In this case, it forced Jews to hide their ethnicity, and in doing so, Hollywood retroactively becomes complicit in the Holocaust. In a provocative statement, Gamunden claims that Lubitsch Films is equally anti-Hollywood as it is anti-Nazi. And there was a, there's been debate more recently in the last 20 years where some scholars say that there's no mention that Jew is never mentioned in the film and that there's no, um, that every time they'll say a po- the Poles. But at, at some scholars have taken offense where Gamunden says, no, this is definitely an anti-Nazi film as well as critical of Hollywood. So could you talk a little bit about your views on that yeah. issue? Um, I, I agree um, with with this assessment of the film, and it's something, I'm, again, I, I was thinking about in relation to your questions for this evening, but particularly in how I think um, when they open up and they get shut down by the government, because um, I think they're going to offend the Nazis, and I think this directs that question where it does have a double function for Lubitsch's uh, status in Hollywood um, and having to negotiate the regulatory modes of the film industry, which by that point are personified by the Production Code Administration of the MPPDA, the Motion Picture Producer and Director Association, which is now the MPAA. Um, and it's really this shocking turnaround if you look, which I know you know of mm-hmm. um, for sure, but you see just really no mentioning of... of um, what's going on in Europe, what, what the Nazis are doing um, of the Holocaust. And then there's this just fast turnaround after 1941, um, where you know there are all these veteran anti-Nazi films coming out of Hollywood uh, once the US enters the war. Um, but I think with Lubitsch is a saying here, with, with actually not saying, but through the veiled language that was permissible working under the code, 
um, that, uh, no, this, I am taking on this problem, and this is something that can't be censored. Um, and I think the, by the film even got to be made to begin with, it's UA, Standard Artist, so it's not from a major studio. But um, supposedly, and I think it's the uh, historian Thomas Odery who um, has the evidence behind this in his book mm-hmm. about Joseph Breen, um, that Breen had two soft spots in Hollywood where he would let these filmmakers get away with more, mm-hmm. and it was Chaplin and Lubitsch, mm-hmm. that he thought they were geniuses. And are those are the two filmmakers that make anti-Nazi films before um, the U.S. enters the war, The Great Dictator for Charles Chaplin, um, and, and this film. Um, so I think, I think that you need to understand the context to see within the framework that he could make this type of film, which is very much a transgression for the types of films Lubitsch made. He wasn't political. Um, most of his films are set in the fictional Lubitsch land of uh, Hollywood, uh, fictional, con- or not Hollywood, um, a, well, Hollywood version of a fictional European country, um, or Paris or Venice, um, and are very much dealing with fantasy. Um, but I think this is him making a statement about what's happening to to his, his family, his people, his his um, his back. What would have happened to him mm-hmm. had he stayed? Um, the staged encounter at the end of the film between Greenberg and his friend Bronsky, a Hitler look-alike who was to have portrayed the, the dictator in a play that the troupe is rehearsing as the film begins is depicted as a ruse to allow the theater company to escape occupied Poland for safety and glory in England. Um, critics have pointed out, however, that Greenberg, who challenges the fake Hitler and gives the, when he gives the impassioned speech based on Shylock's famous address at the Merchant of Venice, he's not with them when they escape. What do you make of his disappearance at the end? Is this a comment on the suffering of the Jews, which can neither be represented or resolved? I mean, that some have claimed, claimed that. Others have said that the issue is simply dropped. I think, uh, I think it could be interpreted both ways. But I think it relates to your previous mm-hmm. question, that this is Lubitsch kind of putting in a structured absence. Like, you know, um, he's not there. And you can infer, well, he, the Gestapo got him. He's in a concentration camp. He got shot. He died in a way that was very real for Jews who were, li- who were living the Holocaust. You could be, you disappear. And people but also know. in terms of the, the fiction itself, that in fact, the fact that he do- this is his real political statement, and I think um, does suggest that he was very deeply concerned about the fate of European Jews. Yes, and, I think he was. And, uh, in, and in, in the tone of the film, you know, the shifting between comedy and, and even in the audience reaction, sometimes laughing, and then, you know, somebody... Zelensky really is shot. Um, there's some really horrible, and a lot of the scenes of the of, uh, troops or the, the airmen, you know, are are, are more realistic than mm-hmm. we would expect in mm-hmm. Lubitschland. Yeah, exactly. Um, you don't. This is a stark, stark contrast to the other films, mm-hmm. and I think that that's um, what. And I don't know if you're going to ask me about this, but that I'm, I think that's why this film still works so well for a contemporary audience because. We're used to those those drastic modes in comedy, and violence is still very much an aesthetic that's well with us in Hollywood cinema, much more so than this moment. Um, but we're more used to this black comedy, the stark sarcasm. Um, but this was so new and different. Yeah. For I almost call it's like 
it's the emergence of like postmodern Lubitsch. It kind of seems like to me, like like uh, Lubitsch's films and some of Preston Sturges and Billy Wilder, who's you know was mentored by Ernst Lubitsch in Hollywood, um, and that's why I think these films really. I mean, I so enjoy watching with all of you and hearing you laugh and enjoy the film. Um, whereas other films that were played really well, if we read, uh, if we believe the anecdotal evidence of the time, maybe fall flat in a, with a contemporary audience or don't don't get laughs in the same way. So there's something more more modern about it. Yeah, for sure. Well, as I said, I just want to push a little bit more on this question of tone. Um, to Be or Not To Be was criticized, as I said, upon its release for its callous and tasteless take on the horrors of Nazism. The comedy seemed too black. The Germans do the concentrating and the Poles do the camping, mm -hmm. especially at a time of war. But whereas the film, or rather the Greenberg character, who some have seen as a stand-in for Lubitsch himself, as they have it, they say, as Greenberg says at the very beginning, a laugh is nothing to be sneezed at. Mm -hmm. What do you think you see as the function of humor in the film? Do you think that Lombard's untimely, so it's two questions, do you think Lombard's untimely death had the biggest impact on the film's initial reception that was critical or confused or conflicted? Or do you instead think that its tone reveals something to do with the power and limitations of laughter that, that Lubitsch is exploring? That a laugh, I mean, that a laugh is nothing to be sneezed at. That mm -hmm. he's, this is, you know, this is serious comedy. I think it's more the latter because um, the one constant thing, if you look, and I actually looked at a, a couple of reviews from ProQuest today from the time to prepare, um, the, the one thing that seems synonymous that reviewers of the time were agreed on was Lombard's performance. And that she, she, I think Bosley Crowe, the New York Times, that she was glowing. Um, Variety said this is uh, sort of a bittersweet um, farewell because you you see it's her best yet. Um, but so, so she, and again, she, by this point, she's passed away. So I don't know if reviewers were going to speak ill of the dead. Um, and this film actually did strong box office performance. So it it was it made money for UA. It was um, it wasn't a flop with audiences, but it definitely um, was. Uh, very disconcerting and polarizing among critics, and so I think um, I think Crowther uh, said it was it was too macabre and in poor taste. Um, and Lubitsch actually wrote op eds, I think, to the Philadelphia Inquirer and the New York Times, like defending his, what he did in this film and defending his his um, his anti-fascist stance, and which is kind of amazing to get to do that. But I think the film's t um, tonal shifts mm -hmm. were really, um, like I said, they. I think that's why the film plays so well for us today, but I think it was quite, it's, it definitely, I can't think of, like Preston Sturges and Billy Wilder are the other two filmmakers, I think, that might um, have similar tone films, but nothing quite like this. So I think it was, yeah, you, you, you're you laughing, oh wait, like, even though I'm supposed to not like this evil Nazi spy, he just got shot in the middle of a slapstick comedy kind of um, scene. And then the, or we're laughing at these hammy actors doing a spoof of the Nazis, and then the Nazis actually come, and you see destruction, and you see devastation and death. And then, oh, now we're laughing again. And we're, um, you, I don't think at that time in Hollywood, I mean, up in, we talked about the production code, but that whole thing was the, the production code really instilled that there's good characters and there's evil characters. There's a right way, a wrong way, and that's um, not at play in this. It's not so simple in this film um, in terms of how um, you know, the, the similar tropes of classical Hollywood that Lubitsch helped establish in a way are, are really undone in a way that 
um, could be, it was bewildering to critics, it's those tonal shifts. Um, and we're so used to it today. Yeah, I mean, it's like, well, of tonal shifts. think about, uh, I mean, I never really made the connection because this film's been so close to my heart for many, many years. But um, in Glorious Bastards, I'm thinking most of us have seen the film, but I think Tarantino is really taking a lot from this movie, quite liberally. I mean, getting all the Nazis in the theater and using art, I mean, he uses cinema to subvert the Nazis, and this film are using theater to subvert the Nazis. Um, and I think that's another thing that what Lubitsch was onto that was maybe too far ahead of it. It was too much for critics at the time to understand. But like the idea that art and individualism and creativity can subvert order, you know, military might um, and power. I mean, I love that last scene when uh, you know our fake Hitler is like, yeah, jump, and they're all like, oh, you know, the pilots just mindlessly jump out because. The Nazis are just all about hierarchical, blind faith, blind um, listening to authority. And uh, again, the reflexivity of maybe Lubitsch pushing back to the Hollywood studio system. You know, I'm not just going to follow orders. At this point, making these types of films are not really being condoned and encouraged in the film industry. You know, I'm going to take a stance um, against this, um, and I'm going to... You know, do it at the only studio I can, you're an artist. And he's in the position to do so. And also, it's mm -hmm. interesting, too, um, I'm teaching a course that kind of runs alongside this, this, this series. And Lubitsch's own fate, critically, I mean, he dies in 1947. Mm -hmm. And um, scholars today say that you know, Lubitsch was really, um, he never really made it onto any pantheons and was kind of dismissed, and especially in the 50s when critics were really enamored of, of you know, neorealism and mm -hmm. and then the French New Wave. And so he suffered both that he died too soon and was not a living director, but also the fact that he worked in comedy. And there was the idea that comedy could not be have the kind of gravitas that I think it actually does here. Mm -hmm. I know you agree. So please join me in thanking Emily Carmen for being with us tonight. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.